0: James chapter two, beginning in verse one, and we'll read down to verse 13. So hear the word of the Lord. My brothers, and you can include sisters there because he has them in mind also. My brothers and sisters, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. So suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a, a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. but you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin Are convicted by the law as a lawbreaker's. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. And if you do not commit adultery but you do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to everyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, I just pray that the posture of our hearts would be receptive to hear these words from you, God, that you wrote through James. Yeah, they can be tough, they can be piercing, and Lord willing, they're convicting in a way that that's, empowers us to not just read and hear, but also to act. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So as most of you know, I've got four boys, uh, 19, 16 12 and 9. I've got birthdays in there. That's why it takes me a while to kind of remember all of them, uh, because I forget their ages right now. But uh, one of the conversations that we have quite often, and hopefully it's kind of goofy and silly, uh, mainly, I think it is, we uh, will have conversations a lot about who's the favorite. And it's not me and Kathy having that conversation, obviously. It's the boys. And um, they normally would say it's, it's not them, and they have their reasons on why it's another one. And so Kathy and I are always, you know, adamant about this. And no, there's no favorites in this home. We love each of you equally. You're all our favorites. So yes, Michael Bryan, you're my favorite. Joseph, yes, you're my favorite. Yes, Conlin, you're my favorite. Yes, Davin, you're my favorite. And they both, all of them will say, you can't do that, Lyle. You cannot have favorites, Dad. Like, all of us can't be favorites. There only can be one. I mean, that's the definition of what a favorite is. And I don't know about you, when you're, when you're young, you probably did the same thing. As a kid, you knew who the favorite was, right? It wasn't Every you, it's usually your sister or your brother or some other person you really didn't like that much. But you always can identify who the favorite is. But when you become a parent, right, when you become a parent, it's like fighting words, is it not? You little stinking morons, there's no favorites in this home. You have no idea the sacrificial love that we've given to you and we love each of you equally. So shut your stinking mouths, amen? That's kind of how it ends around our table. Well, here's here's the thing that I think will feel from this passage of Scripture, will feel kind of like as parents when our kids are saying, hey, you play favorites, we get a little defensive. And not only defensive, I, I would say um, this is where kind of shame sort of, sort of starts kicking in. And the reason why we, um, we feel so weird about this or kind of stiff-armed toward this because it's saying something about our being. And we don't like it when we begin to feel like really bad about ourselves. So we come to a passage like this, and we can can quickly dismiss it. Ah, that doesn't apply to me. I show no favorites. That's that person over there, right? That's not me at all. We can become really defensive, which I think sometimes is the posture that we bring. Defensive in the sense that this is not true of me and will justify and throw out all kinds of reasons why. Or, and this is why it's hard to kind of preach James, because some of you are temperamentally wired in such a way to where you feel miserable, right? You feel defeated. And from chapter two on to chapter five, James gets in our grill, like he really does. And depending on how you're temperamentally wired, you can walk away every Sunday going, oh my gosh, I am the worst person alive, right? Or you can walk away every Sunday going, I don't know if I'm coming back again because this is miserable for me, right? That's kind of how we can feel as we work through this book. But here's my desire for us. This is kind of the posture, not only from this chapter, but also as we work through chapters two through five. I want us to have more of what we might call grace-fueled curiosity. So I have more of a posture of grace-fueled curiosity. And this is what I mean by that. And I say this often here, and I think we need to hear this again, because James assumes this, all right? So if you're in Christ, if you're a Christian here, please hear me. You're safe with God. Like, that needs to sink into the very fabric of your being. You are safe with God. You're loved. His love doesn't kind of wane back and forth, depending on how good of a day you have. He is for you. He looks at you with great delight. He has great joy over you. He smiles over you. Even even what Zachariah says, he sings over you. Sounds really weird, right? But we sing over our kids, maybe not with them in their presence. But sometimes I do, and they don't know it. You do, because have so much joy there. That's how God sees you, because you're in Christ, and he loves his son, so therefore, he loves you greatly. So look, you're safe with God, and with that safety, allows us to have some radical honesty in our lives. And that's what James wants us to do. He wants us to look in a mirror and not forget what the Holy Spirit is saying, even though it may be really, really hard to hear it. So my heart for us today is that we would come with this kind of grace fueled curiosity, to where we, we look at a text like favoritism and we don't necessarily say, I can't see this in me, so then therefore I don't have a problem with it. Instead, my my desire for us is to have a posture of, I can't see this in me, so Holy Spirit help me. Because I'm not arrived, Christian maturity, someone that's growing as a Christian does not boast in their maturity, right? A Christian who's growing and maturing is someone who realizes that they're still in process, that there's still a lot of holes in their theology. There's still a massive gap between what I believe and how I behave. And by God's grace, we're trying to close that gap. And so may we come with some grace-fueled curiosity with this text. This passage is not hard to understand. I mean, James lays it out pretty clear. It's one of the best things about preaching James. It's like, all right, this is what he's talking about. You know, it's not like I'm trying to figure this out like it's some kind of puzzle and I got to put all the pieces together to get the secret code. No, it's like, it's right there. And so we're just going to walk through this text like this. What's going on? What's, what's he talking about? What's, what's happening here? Secondly, why is this a big deal? You know, why, why kind of deal with this, James? And then thirdly, I just want to kind of land the plane by talking about a better way, because James kind of unpacks that in the last two verses that we read. This is, that we read, this is the better way. So the first thing is this, like what, what's, what is going on within this church? Look what he says here in verse one. My brothers, as believers in our Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. So the issue that is at hand in this church, is the issue of favoritism. This is the, the command that James is getting here. It's very clear. Don't show favoritism. The, the the kind of literal translation of that word is this. Do not receive a face. So basically what James is saying this is, don't treat people differently because of their external appearance. Don't treat people differently because of their their color of skin, of of how they dress, of, you know, where they sort of come from, or even their social makeup, whether they're rich or they're poor, or they have a social prominence, or they're kind of outsiders and outcasts, that kind of stuff. Don't treat people differently because of their external appearance. And so then he goes in and kind of gives us an example. Now, some people you know, some commentators make the argument that this is sort of hypothetical. I would sort of disagree. I feel like this is this is an example that's going on in the church because it's really specific. Like it doesn't feel like a hypothetical situation. It feels like real life. This is what's going on in this church. So look what he says here in verse 2. Suppose a man came into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby. The translation of that is revolting. So it's not not just somebody that rolls in here and bell-bottoms when everything's now in this tight, you know, roll, whatever it is, right? It's not, you know, someone rolling in here and they got the wide collars versus the shorter collars or whatever, kind of, that's not what's going on here. This is revolting. This person reeks of body odor. This person possibly reeks of alcohol. Reeks of urine. That's what James has in mind here. Not just someone that's sort of out of style with their dress. So it says in verse three if you, if you show special attention to the, to the man wearing the fine clothes and say, hey, man, here's a good seat for you. But you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or you sit here at my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil? So look, guys, look, just kind of put this in this setting here. All James is saying is someone rolls in here that has some prominence within our city that we know is to be wealthy, right? And we all kind of know who those people are. And if they would roll into our congregation one Sunday, and we go directly to them, making sure they feel comfortable and well-welcomed and feel like we are so glad they're here, make sure they got a, a seat in the shade, amen, right? You know, or they, if they didn't bring sunglasses, I'll, I got it there, right? I'm, I'm, I'm taking care of you, right? Maybe even try to make sure they get introduced to the pastor because we want to make sure they feel like the person that's important in the church makes a connection with them. And then if we have someone that comes in here, who is not prominent, that's wearing shabby clothes, maybe they reek of odor, and we dismiss them, we ignore them, we push them aside, we don't treat them as an equal. That is favoritism. And James is not just saying that that's something you shouldn't necessarily do. It's kind of frowned upon. No, James is saying that is evil. That is wickedness. So look, like, You know, I try to be as honest as I can up here without scaring you all away. Um, But, like, this is a real temptation for me as your pastor. And I, I would make an argument, if you're someone in here that is connected to the life of this church, and you're on board with the mission of this church, and you're sacrificially giving your time and your finances to this church, this is a temptation for you as well. Like, when you're, when you're early on in this stuff, and you just want to make sure you pay your bills, and somebody rolls in here that you know has got some money, and you know, man, if they would just tithe 1% of their income, everything would change here, right? Right? Dude, it's tempting. You go after that person. You make sure they feel welcome. Make sure they feel apart. Because what they could bring to this church could change a whole lot for us as far as ministry to the community. And the reason why, guys, this is such a strong temptation for me and for all of us in this room that are on board at this church is because when a wealthy, prominent, person comes into our midst we have a vision we can see what they can do for us but when someone who is poor that is an outcast that is marginalized when they roll in here we have a vision we have a we have a kind of what we see from them is what we will have to do for them and I don't know if you're like me or not I don't like to sacrifice nor does a lot of people in this room And James is going, look, no, do not show favoritism. Do not treat someone differently because of their own appearance. And he gives us why. Why in the world is this a big deal? I mean, I don't know about you guys. When I first read this this week, I'm going, of all the things that you could talk about that's going on in the church, you begin with favoritism. Because chapter 1 is very general. It's by kind of high level, all right? But then in chapter 2, he gets really specific in the very first thing he deals with is favoritism? Of all the things that's probably going on in the church is you're going to deal with faith Why? Why make something that seems so menial, so trivial, one of the first things that James talks about? Well, I'll tell you why. First of all is this, is because it contradicts the very way that God works. That's why it's a big deal. The reason why favoritism is a big deal is because it contradicts the very way that God works. The second reason why it's a big deal is because it contradicts the very ethic that is defined the church, and that is love. Our reputation as a church is to be love. And if we're showing favorites, then it's contradicting that very ethic that we're to be defined about. Now look what he says here. Look what he says here in verse, uh, verse 5 here. Listen, my dear brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he has promised for those who love him? But what have you done? You have insulted the poor. So look, guys, the reason why this is a big deal is because favoritism contradicts the very way that God is at work. Basically, all that James is saying here is this. Look around. See who's responding to the gospel and the large majority of people that are responding to the gospel are those who are poor, who have no prominence in society, who are marginalized, they're outcasts. Now, why is that the case, James? Well, I'll tell you why the case is. is because the poor feel their need. Those who are outcasts, marginalized, know, not just know, but they feel their need because they're wondering, where in the world am I going to have enough money to pay rent? They feel their need. Where in the world am I going to have enough money to put food on the table in order to feed my family? They feel their need. And when we're wealthy, or even middle class, we don't. And when the gospel comes to you guys, the first thing it's talking about is confronting you with your spiritual bankruptcy. And you will never respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ until you not just know your need for Jesus, but you feel it. But it's not only that, it's not just that those who are poor and marginalized feel their need, but this is a means by which God is at work. It's not random. It's not that God favors the poor more than he favors the rich. It's not that, you know, we need to be a church that just goes after the poor and ignores the rich. No. It's not that there's something, you know, in, in instinctively, inherently more valuable to someone that's poor that makes them more worthy of the gospel. God is at work in the midst of those who are marginalized. This is the way he does his activity. And Paul kind of explains to us why that's the case. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 26. He says, brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were from any kind of noble birth. You're a bunch of nobodies is what Paul is saying here. But God. I I love the buts of Scripture. But God. The conjunction buts, all right, not the other one. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Why? Why is God doing this? So that no one may boast before him. So it's not random that God is going after poor people. It's not some kind of like haphazard way that God is going after those that are marginalized and outcasts. The reason why he's doing that is because he wants to make sure no one else will boast in anything else other than him. Because we've we got to remember that, that God is for his name primarily. That's it. Yes, he is for you. Yes, you are a part of that. But if God would worship anything else other than himself, then he's committed idolatry and we're in bad shape. And so the reason why he's going after the poor is because that's the way he works. He wants to make sure he gets the most glory. And when he gets the most glory, we benefit, not the other way around. So look, guys, what what this church is doing, and I would say that a lot of churches, and there are pockets of it, even in their armaments. This church is taking what God is honoring. And they are dishonoring. God has taken the poor and he's giving them the highest spiritual position that they could have. He's making them rich spiritually. And this church then, who is the very representation of God, is then looking at poor and marginalized people and dismissing them and showing favoritism to the wealthy, the strong, the rich. And God is going, man, you are contradicting the very way that I work. You're misrepresenting who I am. That's the first reason. The second one is this, is that favoritism contradicts the very ethic that defines a church, and that is love. Look what he says here in verse 8. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, and so what is the royal law? What are you talking about, James? I have no idea. What is that? Well, he tells us what it is. Love your neighbor as yourself, direct quote out of the book of Leviticus, that wonderful book that all of us read every year and just can't wait to get back into it, right? But it's out of Leviticus. And that's not just a great direct quote from Leviticus. It's a direct quote from his half-brother, Jesus, right? Who said, here's the summation of the law. It's two commands, love God and love everybody else, right? That's it. It goes on, verse 9. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers, the ethic of the church is love. We are to be known. Our reputation is to be a reputation of love. When someone cuts the church, we don't bleed blue or red. Maybe a little bit. Amen? No, we bleed love. I know sometimes when we hear that word, we get all mushy and weird, and we think of clouds, and people all nice and happy, and there's a part where we need to kind of relearn what love really is. So our culture has really defined it in ways that are not true. But hear me, hear me. Favoritism uses people. Love never uses. You follow me? But God is not drawn to you, nor did he save you because of what you could do for him. That's favoritism. No, God is drawn to you, and he saved you out of his love, out of his love, and this love that he has has your best interest in mind. Favoritism uses people. This is what they can do for us. Love never uses. And you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter which is i think one of the most convicting chapters in all of the bible and i find it very ironic that we read that at weddings because it's like i'm going to fail 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 it's like it's a, it's, a, it's like a, a prophecy right it's like let's read some prophetic scripture today this is how i'm going to fail you in the area of love right it is but man we're bold we're like oh no man not me i'm the exception i'm like okay we'll read it right but thank god there's jesus because he did it for you right You can attempt it, but it ain't going to work very good. Look what he says here in verses 4 and 5. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. It is not proud. Love is not rude. And look at the last phrase. It is not self-seeking. Favoritism is. Is self-seeking, therefore it's anti-love. So look, hear what James is saying. Somebody would come in here that's dressed in beat-up clothes, reeks of body odor, and if we are not kind to him or her, we're not gracious toward them, treating them with courtesy, treating them as an equal an equal image bearer of God because that's who they are, if we just ignore them, then this is what James is saying. You don't understand the gospel and you don't understand love. And why do I say that? Because the gospel is that you and I look like that to God. In our sin, we're revolting. What does Isaiah say? Your righteousness is? Is it say, you know, sort of smells okay? Rags, right? You know, sort of has a nice sort of little scent, rags, you know, maybe essential oil, rags, that kind of stuff. No, he says, your righteousness is like filthy rags. That is my sin before a holy God. It is revolting. And what did God do? He didn't step away. He didn't ignore. He didn't say, "Hey, go sit over there." No, he drew near to us and look guys, Look, if I've not gotten to the level of belief that about my own spiritual need, whenever someone comes in here or I have contact with someone that is different than me, that listen to me, you'll never treat them as your equal. But if you get how revolting your sin is before a holy God, then you'll draw near to those that are different than you. You'll go after them. You'll reach out to the marginalized, the outcasts, the poor. Because that's what love does. The essential movement of love, as one writer says, is always downward. Jesus, who was rich, Became what? Poor. So that he could go after people like you and me who are poor and raise us to the highest position that we could ever have. Rich spiritually. When Pastor says it like this, a merely religious person who believes God will favor him because of his morality and respectability will ordinarily have contempt for the outcast. I worked hard to get where I am, and so can anyone else. That's the language of the moralist at heart. I'm only where I am by the sheer and unmerited mercy of God. I am completely equal with all other people. That is the language of the Christian's heart. A sensitive, social Conscience and a life poured out in deeds of mercy to the needy is the inevitable sign of a person who has grasped the doctrines of grace. Why is this a big deal to James to be the very first thing he talks about when he gets real specific? It's because how we relate to one another, especially those that are different than us, it could possibly contradict the way that God works and it possibly could contradict the very ethic that we are to be defined by, and that is love. So, what's a better way, Lyle? What's a better way? Look what he says here in verses 12 and 13. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And so I don't know about you guys, but I, I, I kind of feel it up here. And I have felt this all week, and that's part of the difficulty of pre- preaching James. Like, you just feel beat up. It's like, man, this is, this, does, it get, does it lighten up? Does it kind of get to a place where like, okay, we're all right, everything's good. This, no, it, it really doesn't. It just keeps coming back and back and punching you in the gut. And I know for some of us, it's like, well, maybe I should wait and come back in August when we're done with this book, right? But look, guys, I don't want to just preach happy sermons. I'm not just after your happiness now, right? I'm after your eternal happiness. And we need to hear hard things so we can step in and live in such a way that God has defined for us to live. That's the best life to live. It may not be the easy life, but it is the best life. So the better way is this. Look what he says here. He uses speak and act. And the reason why he uses those two words is because it's a way of kind of encompassing a person's behavior. So the better way is simply this. It's a, uh, our way of life as followers of Jesus Christ is a way of mercy. That's what he's saying here. And, and speak and act is written in the present tense. And all that means is this, is that it's a continuous thing. It's a way that you live. It's not a one-time event. It's not rolling in here and going and raking somebody's yard or cleaning up trash on a Saturday. Those things are really good and important, and we need to be about those. It's not just like you know, taking a mission trip and serving a third-world country and jumping in there and getting your hands dirty and then coming back here. That's part of it. We need to be doing that. But as a follower of Jesus Christ, this is your way. This is how you live. I mean, that's what James is after. Look what he says. We're here to live as those who will be judged under the law that gives freedom. What in the world is he talking about, right? It's like, come on, be a little bit more clear on that that little aspect. But here's what James is trying to get across here. What law is he talking about? Well, the law he just talked about earlier. Love your neighbor. That's the law he has in mind here. And loving your neighbor does not show favoritism. Instead, the way of loving is that you show mercy. And James has something very specific in mind when he's talking about mercy. And we'll get to that next week. It's the context here. But he's not just talking about mercy that has kind of like this, um, this disposition of being nice, of being gracious, of being kind, of being forgiving. Yes, that's a part of mercy but specifically what James is talking about, he's talking about a mercy that meets physical needs. He's talking about a mercy that sees a need and we meet that physical need. He's talking about a mercy to where we're just helping people. That's what James is after here. And we'll get more into that a little bit uh, next week, but he's not just talking about us being sort of like this disposition where we're just Kind of gracious and kind toward all people. Yes, that's part of it. But when there's a need, physical need, we have not only a responsibility, but a calling from God to meet that need. I mean, James goes on and says, look what he says here. And I know this is hard for us to hear, but look. Judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. And James uses mercy in both those senses. And this one little phrase, judgment without mercy. There won't be any kindness given to you. There won't be any forgiveness given to you. There won't be any graciousness to you. Judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful, meeting physical need. I know for some of us we're sitting to think, okay, wow, man, that sounds like you know, work salvation. You know, it sounds like, man, I got to get my act together or I'm going to be going to hell. You know, that's what it kind of feels like a little bit. Some of you are rolling in here going, man, that's one of the things I liked about sojourn. all about grace. And now maybe you're kind of pulling the rug underneath me. No, I'm not. Because James is not the only one that talks about this. Jesus did. You remember that little silly story that he made with it? It comes with a big punch, doesn't it? When he talks about the guy that was in jail and he owed like I don't know, it was a crazy amount of money, like 10 grand. I don't know. It was a lot of money. And the guy just showed up and said, hey, your debt's forgiven. You're free, man. Get on out of here. And he leaves, and immediately, the text says, he goes and finds a buddy who owes him $5 and chokes him, give me my money back, right, and throws him in jail. What does Jesus say at the end of that? those who do not understand the mercy that they've received will not extend mercy. And all James is saying here is this. If you're someone who, because you walked an aisle, got dunked in some baptismal pool, or prayed some kind of prayer, or you know a few Bible verses, and you can spout those off, but you do not extend mercy, Then you're fooling yourself. You're probably not a Christian. If if the reactive response to people that are outcast, poor, marginalized is they deserve it, they need to get their act together, they need to get more education, they have the same opportunities that I have, they deserve what they're getting. If that's coming out of your mouth, what James is going, you need to examine your heart because you don't realize how much mercy you have received because God did not give you what you deserve and what I deserve, but he extended mercy to us. And at the people of God who believe in the image bearer of all humanity, no matter what color they are, no matter if they vote Republican or Democratic, no matter their sexual preference, that the church of God can't step in and meet those needs that they have physically and extend mercy to them. And we're fooling ourselves. We don't get the mercy that we've received One pastor says it like this, God will judge us if we just talk about love and we don't put our money where our mouth is, and we don't put our bodies where our mouth is, and actually help people addressing practical needs inside and outside the church. better way is a life, a way of living that is merciful. So look, my desire is to come back next week and kind of like dive, dive in a little more practical here. I really do because I think, I think this last two verses kind of spring forward a little bit and get us into the next section there. And, and I just want to say this, like I, like I do, as a pastor, I need to grow in this area. And as a church, then, therefore, we need to grow in this area. And I think there's a lot that we have done in making some strides toward this. Some of the partnerships we established with Loving Choice and Refugee Ministry, one of the reasons why we're doing this, this neighborhood study is so that we can define what needs are in our community. It's, it's a little backward and almost moronic if we go, and hey, we're going to provide a need and have no idea if the community needs it. Right? That's just kind of stupid, right? We can't like, we're going to make a food bank but no one deals with food issues here, right? It's like, that's, that's kind of dumb. So that's one of the reasons why we're doing this neighborhood study is that we can see some needs in this community that God may be calling us to step into. And so I want to come back next week and unpack this more specifically there. So I encourage you, even though it may not feel very encouraging today, I encourage you to come back and listen to what we talk about a little bit next week. But I want to leave you with just a couple things that we can do In response to what James has said here. The first one is this: I want to encourage all of us to be curious. So, what I say at the very beginning, let's have grace-fueled curiosity. And let's ask ourselves questions like this: Who do you instinctively move towards on Sunday? And I know, guys, we can we can move this out into any kind of setting, but you got to remember, guys, look, this is the household of God. And one of the primary ways we as followers of Jesus Christ can practice our faith is within the household of God. This is low-hanging fruit, I would say. And so here's what I'd say to you. If you're not doing it in here, then you ain't doing it out there. And so you got to sit back and ask yourself, who do I instinctively Go towards on a Sunday. Does someone looks like me? Someone that's dressed like me? Or maybe we should look around here even right now and say who's missing? Because I look around, we all look a lot alike, don't we? Why is that? Who do we instinctively? draw toward on a given Sunday. Look, guys, look. and I, Yeah. Look, I can't do it alone. Now these pastors can do it by themselves. The staff team can't do it. Yes, it's a part of our role and our calling and our job here, but listen to me. Like, goodness gracious, man. I, I wish we'd all wear name tags around here. It really helped me out a lot sometimes. Amen? I feel like sometimes when I'm talking to people, they're like, i want to see if he knows my name. And so I'm going to continue this conversation on and see if he calls me bud, sister, whatever. I prayed with a couple a couple week, weekends ago, and I was struggling with that girl's name. Even as I was praying, my mind was going 100 miles an hour, and I just went for it. I think it's this, and I went for it. And I got home, and I was sitting on my couch thinking about the day, and I'm going, Oh, man, her name is this. I knew that. Oh, I don't think they've been back since, so hopefully they'll... Let me roll back in here. Who do you instinctively move towards on Sunday, and who do you move away from? Be curious. If LeBron James rolled in here on a Sunday morning, we would all be peeing in our pants, wouldn't we? Oh my goodness, LeBron James. Did you see LeBron James here? Oh, I wonder if I could go over and talk to him. Oh man, I would be thinking, man, if you just come and tithe 0.001%, we would be in an amazing place, right? <laughs> Unbelievable. Some of that's human nature. But some of that's kind of exposing what's in us. It's ingrained, it's in our DNA. Because if your trash collector showed up, you wouldn't treat him the same. You wouldn't treat her the same, would you? Be curious. Grace fueled curiosity. And lastly, be intentional. Like, like I get it, guys. Like, look, you know, we all come here as consumers. I mean, we're fooling ourselves if we think I'm not a consumer. Yeah, you are. Like, it's in you. It's, it's all in and you. And can't, you can't tell me you walk through these, disorder, these doors and your consumerism drops. It's not like, you know, oh, it's gone. I'm not a consumer. Yeah, whatever. I'm a consumer. I am. All of us are. And so it's not necessarily that we need to figure out how not to be consumers. It's more of a reminder that I am a child of God. I am clothed in Christ. And so guess what Christ would do when he walks through these doors? He would go after someone. He would go after the marginalized. He would go after the one that feels a little awkward here. He would go after the one that may feel a little out of place. Not to make them feel more out of place, right? Amen? Hopefully we've got enough relational capacity to be able to kind of go to someone and make them feel welcome. If you can't do that, then maybe we need to start with relationship one-on-one and we can have a class later on about that. But hopefully you've got some relational capacity where you can do this. Amen? And so you are intentional. You go introduce yourself. You have a conversation with them. You ask them to lunch. You try to build a relationship that you believe in the power of the gospel so much That you're wanting to risk creating relationships and friendships with people that don't look like you. They don't dress like you. They don't talk like you. They may not smell like you. But that kind of community is extremely attractive and counterculture to what we live in today. Be curious, be intentional.